If you would, please open up to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, and particularly verses 19 through 24. It's one of the great teachings of our Lord there upon the the mountain as he preached uh, his most famous and well-known sermon upon the mount. Well, I'll read the text in its entirety, and then I'll ask the Lord to bless us, and I'll seek him by prayer. These are the words of Christ. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one. And despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great treasure that is your word. We thank you that this word powerfully shapes our life and points us to Jesus Christ, our only Lord and our only Savior. I pray that today we would see our Savior in this text. That we would hear his voice speaking to us as a shepherd to his sheep. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us the strength and the spiritual wisdom to receive your word by faith and with great joy. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we have a text that I like to think is a reorienting text. It is a text designed to refocus the mind and heart of the believer in Christ. And what I mean by that is that it's a text that forces us to examine our goals, our priorities, our aims, all that we are doing and thinking in this life before God. And in one sense, this is rather a challenging text. I don't mean that it's challenging intellectually. In fact, it's rather straightforward. We read it and Jesus' words are plain and clear. But I mean that it's challenging morally. It's challenging because a text like this has this funny way of exposing our hearts. It pulls back the curtain a little bit. It peels back the layers. It brings us and our inner life out into the light in the clear day. It's a text that forces us to ask just how worldly have I become? Just how attached How dependent, how interested in the things of the world have I become? And so it pricks our conscience. It's a challenging text. But I want to encourage you as well that as challenging as a text like this is, if we approach it with faith, there's also joy on the other side. Because God is always doing his great work of heart surgery. He is working down deep in us. He's sanctifying us. He's cleansing us. He's making us beautiful like his dear and beloved son. All that he does results in his glory and our good. 
To help us walk through the text this morning, I've got three questions that'll serve as my main points. Three questions that we need to ask ourselves. First, do you treasure Christ? Secondly, do you look to Christ? And thirdly, do you serve Christ? Do you treasure Christ? Do you look to Christ? And do you serve Christ? We'll start with the first point. Do you treasure Christ? Jesus starts off by giving a series of commands. And there's sort of a balance with these commands. One's a negative and one is a positive. You can see those commands in verses 19 and 20. Look with me there. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. And then in verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so right from the start, Jesus is setting these two ways. There's two paths. There's two lifestyles. There's two choices and we must be one or the other. They're set against each other. They're opposed. They're contrary ways that Jesus is putting before the people in this text. We can either be those who lay up our treasures here on the earth, or we can be those who lay up our treasures there in heaven. Now, we might slow down just a little bit and ask, what does Jesus mean when he says to lay up treasure? What is he talking about when he says to lay up treasure? What does he want us to do or not to do? Well, literally what he says in the Greek is that you are not to treasure the treasures of the earth. Somewhat redundant. Do not treasure the treasures of this earth. In other words, do not overly value earthly treasures. And so I want you to see right from the start that Jesus is describing not so much an action that we do, but he's really touching on a valuation that we make. He's touching on our priorities. He's touching on what we esteem. He's touching on what we value. You might put it in other ways. He's touching on what we love and what we adore, what we trust in, what we hope for, what we yearn for, what we strive for in this life, all of these things are laying up a kind of treasure. And here is the principle that he gives us. All of our treasuring has to be prioritized rightly. And principle one is simply this. Earthly treasures must be lesser than heavenly treasures. Well, what does he mean by earth and heaven? What are those? Well, these are in the text, categories of treasures. So earthly treasures, we might simply say, could be created things. Perhaps things that we need, our food, our clothing, our shelter, all that we have that the Lord provides for us. We might think of additional categories, things that we enjoy and things that we like, our leisure, our entertainment, our passions, our hobbies, the culture that we build. We might think of our gifts, our abilities, our skills, our money. We might think of human powers and human institutions, things like that. It's rather a broad category. Those are earthly treasures. What about heavenly? Well, these would be spiritual treasures. These would be those treasures which primarily concern the will of God, which concern the kingdom of God and the gospel of God. And so, for example, you might consider the great blessings of your salvation. You've been justified in Christ. You've been sanctified and are being sanctified. And one day you will be glorified. 
Those are treasures of heaven. And so all of those could be called heavenly treasures. And once again, Jesus tells us rather simply, we must value, we must esteem and prioritize the heavenly above the earthly. And what reason does Jesus give? I love this about Jesus, that he not only tells us what to do, he tells us why we should do it. Well, very simply, he tells us that treasures on the earth, they do not last. Moth and rust destroy them. Thieves break in and steal them. They aren't going to last. Those earthly treasures, whatever they may be, they're prone to rottenness. They're liable to be taken from us. They can break or be destroyed. No doubt you've heard the old adage many times in your life that regardless of how much you have, when you die, you can't take them with you. And therefore, to value these earthly treasures above heavenly treasures is the height of foolishness. Let me see if I can illustrate this with one of Jesus' parables. This particular parable comes in Luke 12. Let me read it to you. Jesus says that the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I want you to think about the word that God says to that man. He says, fool. Why is that man so foolish? Evidently, he's a, a smart man. He's skilled. He's laborious. He's industrious. He's produced great things and great wealth and great riches. He's foolish because he's taken all of the gifts and skills and abilities that God has given them, and he has exclusively pursued earthly treasures with them. He has prioritized the wrong thing, and Jesus points out so clearly for us that that is the height of foolishness. Jesus summarizes this in no better words in Matthew 16 when he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and yet forfeits his soul. Well, those are earthly treasures. What about the heavenly ones? Well, they're counteracted with the earthly treasures. They do not perish. They do not rot. They do not corrupt in any way. In a sense, they're untouched by the flesh and by sin and by the world and even by Satan and all of his wiles and power. They can't be touched. These are real treasures originating from the word of God. They're real treasures bought and earned by Jesus Christ, revealed to you by faith and kept and stored in heaven for you by Christ himself. In other words, what great riches these are. What wonderful, powerful, splendid riches that we have. It's heavenly food that we have from Christ. And it's my great delight to tell you that all of those riches of heaven are singularly located in the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone. All of the riches of heaven are found in this man. All of them are to be obtained by faith. 
All of them are given to you by a gracious God who loves you in Christ, specifically. You can think of Ephesians 1.3, where Paul writes that God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, all, er, all spiritual treasure is bound up with this man. And so let me encourage you with that point this morning. Do you belong to Christ by faith? Are you united to that man by faith and humble reliance upon him? If so, then you are rich beyond measure. You are astoundingly wealthy because all of the bounty of heaven is yours in Christ. And let me encourage you in one other way. Those riches are not merely something set far. They're not far off into the into the distance waiting for you. There's a sense in which we will receive our full inheritance in heaven and nothing we have on this side of heaven will compare to it. But those riches are yours today. Those riches belong to you right now and are accessed in Christ. And that means that you can have true joy and true contentment and true satisfaction in Christ right now. You could think of Paul's words... In Philippians 4, he writes such beautiful words here. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, whether you have a little or a lot, whether you are great in earthly treasures or you have, frankly, not many earthly treasures, if you have Christ, you have true and everlasting treasure, you can be satisfied in him today. Christian, have you come here this morning satisfied? Have you come here content in Christ? Or when you look back on your most recent months and weeks and days, have you seen a growing discontentment in your heart? A growing or a gnawing dissatisfaction that seems to pop up in all areas of life? I encourage you today, set your heart back onto Christ. See him for the treasure that he truly is. Jesus summarizes this very well for us in verse 21. Look at what he says. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so that means that what you treasure reveals who you are. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that this, this text really lays us bare, doesn't it? It brings us out into the light. It exposes our hearts. And that's because our heart follows our treasure. Wherever your treasure goes... Always know this, your heart will follow that treasure. Whatever it is that you love, your heart will be there close behind. Wherever your treasure goes, you go too. And the reason that's true is because love is a covenantal thing. You are bound up with that which you love. That which you delight in, you are bound to it. And with that comes a great warning to all of us. If you love this world a world which is passing away and fading, a world which will come under the judgment of God upon the return of our Lord, then you will end where that world ends. You will be bound up with that passing world under the judgment of God. 
but take heart. If your heart belongs to Christ, who is indestructible, who is everlasting, who sits at the right hand of God the Father and who rules and reigns, then your heart is kept. If he is your treasure, then you will abide with him forever. And so I ask you this morning, what do you treasure? Secondly, do you look to Christ? Do you look to Christ? Look with me at verses 22 and 23. Jesus says that the eye of the lamp is the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And so Jesus is working with a new metaphor now. He's speaking of eyes and of lamps. And in one sense, an eye and a lamp are very similar. You need both of them to see. If you don't have a lamp, you don't have light. And you stumble around in the darkness. If you don't have eyes, well, then you're blind and it's the same thing. You stumble around in the darkness. And Jesus makes a very interesting distinction here, speaking about eyes. On the one hand, there's a healthy eye. And on the other hand, there's a bad eye. And he's not talking about um, physical health. He's not talking about an eye with 20-20 vision or somebody who can't see anything from a distance or something like that. No, when he says a healthy eye, he's speaking about a single eye. That's what that word means. It's singular. It's sincere. It's straightforward. The idea is that it's an eye focused on one place. It's focused on one object. It has undivided attention. And Jesus uses this word to describe the godly believer. They're loyal. Why? Because they're looking to Christ. Christ holds the central spot in their life and in their heart. And that's distinguished with the bad eye, which is a wicked eye. It's a deceitful eye. It's, in a sense, untrustworthy. It's always looking around. It can't ever stay in one spot. It's never really devoted to one object. It's moving around constantly. That's what makes it such a wicked eye. And what is the result? Well, a bad eye brings darkness, Jesus says, but a healthy eye brings light. And that indicates direction. It indicates clear sight. That is, the one who has a healthy eye is without confusion. They're without disarray. Why? Because they're looking to Christ. They know how to live because they're watching Christ and how he lived. They know where to go because they're following Christ and their eyes will not be taken off of him and therefore they're walking in the light. This is vital for the believer. That we must walk by sight. We must see Christ always and we do this by our faith. We see him by faith. We walk by faith. Let me read to you words of Hebrews 12, which illustrate this so well. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so it is by looking to Jesus that he strengthens our faith. That is, he's the source of our faith. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And not only that, but in this metaphor of a race, when we look by faith, what do we see at the end of the race? We see Christ standing there. 
By faith, we see that He is our reward. He is our portion. He is our glory. He's everything that I'm striving for. He's everything that I'm working toward. I want to be at the end because I want to be with my Savior. That's what the healthy eye is like. And this is so vital for Christians to understand. It's vital because the Christian life, this race that we're talking about, can seem so long at times. It can be so difficult. It can be so tiring at times. And so you may be thinking, if you're honest with yourself, this race has grown rather tiring. Maybe there's a sense in which you look at yourself and you think, I feel as if I'm being left behind. That everyone else is running along and I'm being left in the dust, trailing behind. Maybe you're thinking, I'm hungry or I'm thirsty or I'm discouraged in this race. Maybe you're even thinking, I'm distracted in this race. I can't keep my eyes on Christ. I keep focusing on the things of the world around me. There's only one solution. Revert your eyes back to Christ. Gaze upon Him. And how do you do that? Well, you can do several things. Let me give you a few. You remember His love for you. You remember that this man who you are following and looking to came to redeem you. You remember His mercy. That He has forgiven you of all of your sins. I encourage you, meditate often on the cross. Think about the suffering of your Savior for you and in your place. Think often about His cross. I encourage you as well to meditate on your identity in Christ. Who are you, believer? You're dead to sin. And you're alive to God in righteousness in Christ. That is who you are. It is who Christ has made you and called you to be. Meditate often on your heavenly reward. That is Christ himself there at the finish line with open arms for you. Also encourage you to remember Christ's body. In other words, look around. See other believers as they're following Christ and walk in stride with them. Follow after Christ as they follow Christ. Be encouraged by your fellow believers. And let me give you one more application here as it relates to seeing and following Christ. Make diligent use of the means of grace. We've been thinking about seeing Christ as kind of a race. Well, if you've ever seen a marathon, and when the runners are running their 26 miles... Could you ever imagine one of those runners as they're coming to their rest stops and people are holding out the cups of water for them and the little energy bars and all the snacks? Could you ever imagine one of those runners smacking that out of their hand and saying, I don't need that water. I don't need that energy. I don't need that snack. I can run all 26 miles by myself on my empty stomach. And of course, you couldn't ever imagine somebody doing that. It would be foolish. And yet there are so many Christians trying to run this race of faith without using the nourishment that God himself has provided for you. There are too many Christians trying to run and they are empty on prayer and they're not communing with their father and their God. They're trying to run and they have not eaten deeply of the meal of scripture and a healthy diet. They're trying to run a race apart from a heart full of worship and desire to God. I encourage you, if you're running this race, make diligent use of the means of grace. Bring the second point to a close simply by asking, is your eye healthy? Are you looking to Christ? Are you following after him? Or is your eye divided, focused on another object? 
Thirdly, do you serve Christ? Do you serve Christ? Look at the final verse, 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so once again, Jesus gives us another metaphor. Now he's talking about a slave and masters. That's the teaching metaphor he uses. And he particularly tells us that there's two kinds of masters. There's God and there's money. Now, you may be thinking, well, I remember maybe earlier in my life seeing that word money translated differently in my Bible. For example, in the King James or something like this. That it was written as that funny word mammon. That's because it's, it's a rather interesting word that doesn't just mean money, but it means all of your possessions, all of your riches. So when you hear money, I don't want you to think just your currency, but think of all that you have. Equate that with the earthly treasures that we talked about in point one. Those are the two masters, God and mammon. Let me make two observations about them. First, notice that these masters are opposed to one another. They are fundamentally different to each other. They have different agendas. They have different goals. They have different methods. They, they work with us with different promises and with different rewards. They're contrary to each other in every way as masters. Let me give an illustration to see if I can make this a bit more clear. Imagine that there is a political race and there are two candidates. And these two candidates are on every single issue at the exact opposite. They could not agree on a single point. They're dynamically opposed to one another. Could you in any way meaningfully work for both of those candidates? You know, you say on Tuesday, I'll work for candidate A and I'll advance his cause. Well, what happens when you advance the cause of the one? You decrease the cause of the other, do you not? It's, it's a correlation, it's perfect. And so Jesus tells us that you cannot love one without hating the other. It's impossible. There's no way to love them both. There's no way to serve them both. You cannot serve God and money. You will hate one and you will love the other. You will serve one and you will neglect the other because they're opposed. Secondly, I want you to notice that service is the true overflow of a heart of faith and love. Think a little bit about the flow of these, of these verses. We started with Jesus challenging us on our heart and our faith. What, did, what are you treasure? What are you hoping in? What are you longing in? What is your faith in and your trust? And so on and so forth. But notice how by the end of the text, Jesus is talking about your service. Who do you serve? Who is your master? And he's showing us that to love God, to have faith in Christ, is to serve him. It will lead to service. It will result in service. Let me see if I can give a couple of examples from the scriptures. In Luke 9, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words... You want to follow me. You want to have faith in me and love me. You must take up your cross. You must do this. I'll give you one other example. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says rather plainly, if you love me, you will keep my 
commandments. And so I ask you today, do you love God? And if so, serve Him. Serve Him alone. Now, will you do that perfectly? No, not a chance in the world. In fact, you will fall and you will fail and you will flounder just as much as I do each and every single day. We will struggle to serve God perfectly. That's not what I'm asking you to do. But can you serve Christ with increasing enthusiasm? With increasing success as God himself sanctifies you? As you walk in step with the Holy Spirit? Can you do it with greater passion and with greater success? All of those should be answered with yes and amen. Of course we can. We can serve Christ because he's called us to it. And we need to see that this, this service is the test of faith and of love. It's self-denial. It's service. It's obedience. It consists in renouncing sins and in walking in obedience. It consists in sacrificing our own will in order to adopt the will of our Father because we love it and we know that His will is better. It's a text like this that shows all of us, that Jesus is not playing games with those who would call themselves disciples. No, he's forcing an answer. He's telling you a choice must be made. A path must be trod. You must go some way. And that way will either be righteousness or unrighteousness. You know, Jesus knows us so well. He knows that we will serve something. And I encourage you today, let that not be the things of this world. Let it not be yourself which you serve. Let it be Christ, and Christ only, and Christ fully, and Christ truly. And so today, cast away those idols that remain in the hidden crevices of your heart. I encourage you, forsake the love of this world. In fact, I tell you that this world is not worthy of your affection and your worship. And so even by pains, cut them off. Sacrifice them at this altar of Christ. And I promise you, God himself will give you the strength to do it if you are willing to follow him. You know what's wonderful about our God? He calls us to follow him and to take up our cross and to serve him. That requires great sacrifice, but he promises something so much better. He promises a salvation rich and full. He promises an everlasting reward of life before God, before the face of God himself. Everlasting peace, everlasting righteousness, everlasting life of blessedness and joy with our Savior. That is the beatific vision that we have. And God promises that to all who follow him. And so one more time, hear the word of Jesus, your Savior. You cannot serve God and money. So serve him with all of your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious word. We thank you that you challenge us, that you convict us. And that you've supplied us with a Savior who is sufficient for all of our needs. Lord, I pray that you'd give us the strength to follow Christ with greater zeal, with greater passion. Lord, might we give more of ourselves to him, seeing that he has given everything for us. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name.
Amen.